0: This is Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kittler. And this is episode 36 in our series for 2014. And today's date is Friday the 19th of September, and Leon, what's on the schedule for this week?
1: Well, we start off with a terrific interview with Jurgen Michaelis. He's the CEO of BioSA. He's going to be talking to us all about how they do go about developing biotech industries in South Australia.
0: Yeah, it's a very interesting mod- model. He has a team of 14 uh, scientists. They've all got science qualifications, but each one of those... One has an MBA in business administration, another one has a degree in logistics, and so it goes, so that you can build a business structure for the guy with the uh, the bioscience idea.
1: We also have a chat with the RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson about the Abbott government's next big job, which is tax reform, and see whether they get around together, and then we uh, take a look at the week's news. But first of all, let's talk to Jürgen Michaelis.
0: Since Bioscience SA was established in 2001, the number of bioscience companies in South Australia has doubled. All have global ambitions and some have already achieved them. And today, 100 bioscience companies operate in South Australia, employing more than 1,700 people and generating about 300 million in annual revenue. BioSA is now a business incubator in a state-of-the-art campus close to the heart of Adelaide. And I spoke to the chief executive, Dr. Jurgen Michaelis, and started by asking him what the aims were.
2: Very often it is being mistaken as governments or universities build buildings, infrastructure. And uh, governments are very good at building infrastructures. But what we do here at BioSA, we fill the buildings, we build the companies first. And it's called virtual business incubation. Creating businesses first, get them to a stage where they are good at R&D, they have the first products going towards market. They have some funding, maybe even cash flow positive. But they need to invest all the money into product development or in R&D, and not into bricks and mortar, like go to the bank and trying to build the new headquarters. Hence, here in South Australia, at BioSA, we have built two business incubators of total area of close to 8,000 square meters, where we provide as a landlord, offices and sophisticated laboratories for companies to rent. The benefit for the company is they get accredited, highly sophisticated space, but they don't have to invest the capital to um, to build the buildings to work to work in. So they can use the uh, the scarce funds that they have uh, to develop products.
0: Obviously you need talent and high skills and knowledge levels, but bioscience is not generally a mass employer. What's the benefit to the wider community of working at these higher technical and uh, intellectual levels?
2: It is interesting, Adelaide is a regional economy, we are, we are an oasis, an oasis in a desert far away from it, and you would think there, is, um, there are not many opportunities. My team, and we are a small team of fourteen staff, we see about uh, forty opportunities a year uh, almost like walking into our door. University researchers, medical research entrepreneurs from of the street come in and saying um, we have we have an idea, and uh, it is in the role of my team to uh, Go through it and provide assistance uh, without any great rules or boundaries look at what the opportunity is and see how we can see how we can help all up in the last 13 years we assisted about 75 companies to start here in south australia and uh, the companies that we've assisted uh, two-thirds of them are still in business five years after uh, we help to establish them. That's a significant um, uh, survival rate of, of high-tech companies here in, in South Australia.
0: So the income spills over to the rest of the community in a variety of ways.
2: Yeah, there are, there are a couple of angles here. Um, one is if if we look at the change in um, industry landscapes around the world, um, as a policy maker, governments have important decisions to make. And the question to ask is where do the spillover effects come from? Yeah? What industries give you the best spillover effect into the rest of the community to create jobs? And it has been well shown overseas that high tech industry, knowledge intensive industries, provide the best spillover effect. Um, if, by way of example, if we look at the average per capita income in, in South Australia, it's about $45,000. So the average income divided by the number of people in, 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 in work here. Um, in Australia, it's about $50,000. But when we surveyed the companies here in Thebeton, our in in our technology cluster, it is uh, close to $70,000 yeah, uh, per capita uh, salary, so to, so to speak. Yeah. These, if you then look at revenue in a company per employee. So look at a public listed company, what is the revenue, and divide it by the number of staff. It's it's very simple. And you will find that uh, at GM Holden, for example, here in South Australia, the, the average uh, revenue per employee is about $85,000, whereas in the high-tech sector, it is well above $200,000 often exceeding three hundred thousand dollars it's two to three times as high. So from a policy point of view to establish these industries where you have high technology, high revenue per person and high per capita income that can create other jobs because people are spending the money in other sectors and create uh, spillover industries. If you try to prop up or work on the low per capita income jobs, which are important for for society, but they don't provide the necessary uh, spillovers. It is well it is well known that um, one of the major beneficiaries of um, uh, high tech industries are not necessarily the university graduates that uh, have a degree or a PhD and go into industries and have a fabulous career. The major benefits. Of spillover comes into paraprofessionals, or I use the example for uh, in the, the the cleaner in a laboratory, in a in a GMP manufacturing side, it is, the cleaner will earn almost double the annual uh, wage than a normal cleaner because of the training that is required to uh, to clean those to clean the facilities. So it's a it's a paraprofessional that uh, that uh, has a higher per capita. Income uh, uh, simply because working in in high tech, and the same applies for, for receptionists, the uh, the um, uh, support staff, and so on. Overall, the salaries are higher.
0: Australia spends about ten billion a year on research through CRCs and other organisations, but we don't spend very much on commercialisation. What's your view about that?
2: In in Australia, we have to think about how do we balance the the innovation system. Um, uh, we are we are a smart country. We might not portray ourselves as being a smart country because overseas we are seen as a resource exporter, from mining to gas, uh, iron ore, and, and so on. But um, one of one of the roles that we are playing here is uh, to to explain to people overseas in Europe and in China, for example, that we are a technology exporter. Um, in very simple high figure. Terms, Australia spends about $10 billion a year on research. And it still is not comparable to, on a per capita basis, what we'll find overseas. But it's still an enormous amount of money. But we only spend about uh, $100 million in commercialization. So it's uh, one in 100. Um, and our experience here at BioSA shows that uh, about one in 10 of the opportunities that we see is being funded in public sector research organization has some merit to, uh, to follow up and uh, to foster. It doesn't mean there will be a success but one, uh, one, one intent. This would call for uh, almost like a, a one billion dollar commercialization fund. Um, is this feasible? Yes it is feasible. Is it necessary? I said absolutely it is, it is, it is necessary. If we, would, if we would do the same in, um, in the resources industry uh, when we go out prospecting for uranium or copper and so on, if we would only um, develop one in hundred uh, mines that we where we found uh, gold or diamonds, yeah? so we go out, we we'll, we'll find a gold deposit. We found it, we leave it in the ground, and we go out and find the next one and the next one. We, we, never, we never use the, um, the, um, the asset that we have been generated. You know, the mining industry does not allow that, it would never happen. But in our research sector, it does happen. You know, only one in hundred we go out and, uh, and, and foster. So we need to change that in order to be competitive.
0: Why was biotech chosen by the South Australian government for you know really quite major support?
2: It is it is it is a long it is a long story and it was uh, probably before my time. Um, one thing I have to say, it is not biotech as such. It's we call it bioscience. So we we assist companies in in a very diverse area from water management, diagnostics, medical devices, agriculture. But agriculture is not broad-acre farming, it's the high-value-add uh, in food, health, IT, and so on. It is really broad. Um, the, other, the other thing which the South Australian government did really well is if you want to develop an industry, um, it is difficult to do that out of one single government department. Uh, Developing an industry requires a cross-section of disciplines of uh, financial expertise, economic development, international trade, uh, business management, IP management, law, corporate finance, corporate governance, uh, uh, human resources, uh, attracting international talent. So it goes across many sectors of the government and government agencies. So the South Australian government decided uh, in in 2001 to form a statutory authority. We are just like the South Australian Police or South Australian Water, a statutory authority, with a very small team uh, to work uh, across these various disciplines. And what we've done here is we we mirror the expertise and the the uh, various functions in a bioscience company so my financial controller is able to talk to a financial controller in a company my lawyer can talk to a lawyer in the company, the marketing person here talks to a marketing person there. So industry has a contact person and almost all of my staff have as a base training uh, science in whichever form you're from from engineering to biotech to, uh, uh, to you know, chemistry. And uh, being able to engage with companies at the technical level to talk their language, the common language science, uh, is a great door opener and uh, builds a lot of trust uh, with businesses.
0: Dr. Michaelis, thank you very much for your time. It's very interesting. They've been going 13 years and they've been in the incubator building for uh, since 2008 and they would see about 40 possibilities a year and do about perhaps three or four to the extent that Adelaide is now the base for about 100 bioscience companies.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. That is amazing and uh, not bad for a state that was regarded as a rust bucket area.
0: That's right. Jürgen's very interesting, I thought, in what he was saying about the way you get a flow-on of income because uh, salary rates
1: um, are much higher in, the, in high-tech uh, companies. And now let's have a chat with Sinclair-Davidson about tax reform. Sinclair-Davidson, Parliament resumes during the week and uh, we're assuming the government gets its budget through at some stage, which I know is a big assumption. Then we move on to tax reform. What are the big issues here?
3: Well, I th- the, the first big issue to point out is that we've actually, in the last 10 years, we will have had three major tax reviews. First, the Warburton-Henry Hen- um, Review in about 2004-05, then the, sorry, the Hendy Review, not the Henry Review, then the Henry Review in 2009-10, in and now the government's going back into a white paper process. So, The first big issue is that we don't really know what we want from our tax system. The fact of the matter is Australia is very highly reliant on direct taxes, which is the personal income tax and the corporate income tax, and less reliant on indirect taxes. So the costs of direct taxes are obviously a lot higher than indirect taxes. So the the first issue is, do we want to keep that reliance on direct taxes and indirect taxes, or do we want to change it? The next thing is, how much revenue do we want to raise? Do we want to actually start validating the increases in expenditure we've seen over the last few years, or do we want to rein those back and balance the budget at a lower level of GDP? So there there are actually some very base fundamental questions that we've got to ask ourselves, which the warburton hendy review didn't ask itself, and which the Henry review didn't ask itself either. So I think we need a a back-to-basics approach, and uh, that would certainly be my starting point.
1: And how long do you expect that process would take?
3: The Government anticipates taking proposals to the next election, which are in 2016, which more or less leaves us 18 months for quite a comprehensive debate, I would imagine, which I think is probably not enough time in the grand scheme of things. Uh, Certainly need to get cracking on this fairly quickly and get moving. As I say, 2016 would certainly be the at the next election. That's when the government wants to have in place proposals to take to the electorate.
1: What do you say about the future of GST?
3: Um, that is the elephant in the room, isn't it? The, the, the idea that 10% rate and the exclusions on, on food and health and what have you be maintained. I like the idea of keeping the GST rate at 10% and keeping the exclusions as they are. I think we, we have to recognize, first and foremost, GST is a regressive tax. The arguments that we've heard from people like Tim Costello, for example, that you can tax fresh food because low-income people don't eat fresh food that much are simply appalling uh, value judgments about about people. The, the issue is if you're going to change the GST, what are you going to change and how are you going to trade that off? Now, if they came along with something along the lines of let's go for 15% GST, but take out a payroll tax, for example, uh, that, that probably is, is a reform well worth looking at. The problem that I have with the GST is if you remember when it was brought in in 2000, the federal government was actually in a very good fiscal position. It was comfortable. They modified, or they introduced the GST at a time when the government didn't need the money. So they could actually drive some serious reform. We're in a position now, 2015, 16, where government does need the money and it's gonna be a lot harder to drive substantial reform. So the GST in Australia replaced a whole bunch of inefficient taxes. If they do that again, it'll be a a reform well worth considering. But the question is, will they do that?
1: So what sort of changes are needed for the GST?
3: The the money all goes to the state governments. I think that needs to be maintained because in our federation, we actually have a very high level of vertical uh, fiscal integration, which is unbalanced. So what happens is the federal government raises most of the money. The state governments spend most of the money. The money needs to continue going to the states. We don't want the federal government to be taking any of the money apart from the actual cost of running the system. The states, however, do need to give up some of their inefficient taxes. So we still have some of those on the books. Stamp duty is not just a stamp. It's actually a revenue raising device. It should go back to being more or less a protection of property rights, which is the design of the the stamp. The payroll tax is a tax on employment. Now, most economists are going to say that's not true. It's like the income tax. Well, even the Henry Review modeling showed that the deadweight losses on payroll tax are much higher than those for income tax, which more or less say it's costing people jobs. Despite the fact that uh, um, employment growth seemed to go up in the last week or so for the latest uh, ABS numbers. The fact of the matter is unemployment in Australia is unacceptably high at the moment at over six percent. So a tax on jobs does need to go. The payroll tax needs to be amended. Stamp duty needs to be amended. These are things need to be looked at and those are trade-offs against the GST. Now the government right now wants more revenue so they're going to be a bit reluctant to go for revenue neutral taxes but certainly that's the way we need to be thinking if we are going to change the GST at all.
1: What about the distribution between the states? it's another contentious issue massively contentious
3: the problem is there that we have Western Australia who's getting oh if they're getting fifty cents in the dollar it, it's an amazing I think it's probably less than that and then we've got Tasmania the Northern Territory and South Australia that are in a lot of trouble Tasmania is, is in a lot more trouble than is South Australia and more or less to modify that distribution you have to get the states to agree now the one way you could get the states to agree is to bribe everybody the The problem is that the federal government's got no money at the time so we should have been looking at changing the distribution of gst revenues when we were in budget surplus not when we were in budget deficit because certainly my view on these things is first and foremost you get the budget back into into surplus or mildly surplus so more or less balanced and then you go for the big reform items it's very very hard to undertake
1: major reform from a position of deficit given that could be take many years till the budget gets into surplus. We can, therefore can't go near distribution redistribution of the GST. Is that what you're saying?
3: I would certainly suggest yeah, that that would be something we'd have to wait until the overall budget is back in surplus, yes.
1: And, of course, states are unlikely to want to give up any of their own taxes.
3: Well, right now it's very hard for them to give up those taxes because those taxes are actually big revenue raises for the states. If, if we look back to the Henry Review, there are 125 taxes across all levels of government in Australia. Of those 125, 10 of them raise 90% of all of the revenue. Payroll tax is one of them, stamp duty is one of them, and state land tax is one of them too. So th- these are massive taxes in the Australian context.
1: Now, how confident are you uh, that the government would actually do something with the review's recommendation, given what we saw with the Rudd government, for example, and the Henry review, where hardly anything was got up from that?
3: You've got to bear in mind that the Rudd government heart wasn't really in it. The Henry Review was brought in after the 2020 uh, convention, if you recall, where 1,000 of Australia's brightest and best went off to Canberra. None of those proposals ever got up. The Henry Review was almost one of the few of those that actually came out of that, and it was almost like the government was bored and didn't have anything to do, so it announced a tax review, which when the tax review finally reported, um, they, they weren't actually prepared for, for, for anything to happen. So I think the difference between the current government and the previous government is that the current government's heart is in it. This is actually something that they took to an election, they promised it would happen, and it's going to happen. I just have to say, given the sort of dearth of serious, hard uh, decisions that this current government has made, it's going to be very hard for them to make future hard decisions too. And I think a good tax review is going to generate a lot of hard choices.
1: Well, that is quite critical because given the grief that this government has copped over the budget, do you see this affecting their mindset on tax reform where they will have to make hard decisions?
3: I would hope that they've actually learned from the budget experience. Now, the the, the problem with the budget is that, first of all, I don't think they made too many hard decisions. Um, they, they seem to be confused between what is a hard decision and what is an annoying decision. Um, they're very good at annoying, not so good at hard. And The other problem is that they didn't actually articulate what they were doing. Many of the, 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 the annoying decisions which came out of the budget were actually surprises. We, we'd never heard a word about university reform. We'd never heard a word about co payments, we'd never heard a word about twenty billion dollar slush funds for medical research. These are the things that people are balking at and they hadn't the groundwork hadn't been done. You would hope in a review process that this is an opportunity for lots of discussion, lots of ideas, lots of groundwork being prepared. And if the government does that, I think everybody agrees there needs to be something done about taxation. Uh, we don't agree what's to be done, but when we come to a consensus we can do it. You don't just surprise people on the day. And that's what's wrong with their budget process, and I hope that that is not what goes wrong in their uh, tax review.
1: Finally, where do you see the tax review heading uh, ultimately?
3: Um, I I, I think a good process will lead to some interesting discussions and reform. A bad process will result in what has happened over the last 10 years where we'll be into our third tax reform phase, which is always once in a lifetime. Well, we've had three lifetimes in 10 years. So if if it's a good process, it will be a good outcome. Uh, we, we haven't been good at processes um, over the last 10 years. Uh, Mr. Hawke's tax summit might be the way to think about things, uh, to, to get things going along. But but certainly just having people, sort of great minds, go into, into sort of seclusion and come up with a reform package, which then gets sprung upon the electorate, is not the way to go. And that's what's been tried the last uh, two occasions. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much. Thank you.
0: So now, Leon, the, uh, what's been going on this, this past week?
1: Well, first of all, the OECD, Gary, has warned that the sickly Eurozone recovery is a drag on the outlook for the global economy. It's cut growth forecasts for the most major advanced economies. And the sluggish recovery is also at risk from increased tension over conflicts in the Ukraine and the Middle East, and certainly over the future of Scotland. And it's dropped by a third, its 2014 Eurozone forecast, to 0.8%. That's down from 1.2% it had projected in May. Now, it didn't actually provide an update to its forecast for the global growth this year, which had at 3.4% in May, but I think... It's going to go down.
0: Yeah, and the other sort of, um, it isn't an elephant in the room, but it's a a sign. Um, Some people are starting to say that the Chinese won't hit 7.5% this year.
1: Well, actually, Chinese industrial production actually slowed sharply to 6.9% in August. That's the lowest level in more than five years. This figure, which measures output at factories, workshops, mines, uh, marked an abrupt slowdown from the 9% year-on-year expansion that was recorded in July and that's the worst since the 5.7% recorded in December 2008 during the global financial crisis. And as a result, Beijing has started pouring money in, they're printing money. And they're ramping up the stimulus for the Chinese economy and they're injected $500 billion, that's about $89 billion, of liquidity into the country's five biggest financial institutions. Now, there's also some worrying news for Australia. China is moving to ban the sale and import of dirty coal in less than four months in an anti-pollution move that's going to have repercussions for key exporters like Australia. I was reading today it could cost Australian industry $1.5 billion dollars. Now, coal with sulfur content of more than 3%, ash content of more than 40% won't be permitted from January the 1st. Now, the reality is China's three decades of rapid industrialization have actually transformed its economy, Gary. And it's incomes have soared, but it's also created severe environmental consequences. I mean, if you we've both been in China. We've both seen the way those cities are blanketed in smog. You can't breathe in Shanghai. No, absolutely not. And so much of that pollution is driven by the Asian giant's heavy reliance on coal. And China's the world's biggest consumer of coal, accounted for half of the global consumption. And that's big news for Australia, because as I said... Australia exports an estimated 49 million tonnes of thermal coal to China every year. And some uh, warring news coming out of the US. Um, US industrial production unexpectedly fell in August after six months of gain, dragged down by a slump in automobile manufacturing, and overall industrial production declined by 0.1%. But if you look at the big picture, Gary, their industrial production is up 4.1% compared with a year ago.
0: Yeah, unemployment's dropping. And, OK, progress may be slow, but they they do look like being on the way back.
1: Progress is patchy, and uh, the UK unemployment rate has fallen more than expected, the lowest level for almost six years in the three months to July. The jobless rate for the May to July period was 6.2%. That's down from 6.4% in three months to June, the lowest rate since August 2008. Having said that, though, Gary, wages growth is at record low levels which means uh, Britons are suffering from falling pay in real terms.
0: Yeah, and the, the Scottish um, prospect isn't helping either.
1: Although I noticed Betfair is putting on a 79% likelihood of it being status quo.
0: Well, that would be the sensible thing. Well, you know, it, they're, not, they're not all Braveheart warriors up there.
1: You know how it is in Scotland, Gary, you go into a pub and you tell someone that all that drinking's going to do you damage, and it says, line up another one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Now, multinationals beware the G20 and the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development are on your case, and this weekend's G20 meeting in Cairns is going to get a full progress report from the OECD on the aim of cracking down on tax avoidance by big global companies. And through the G20, the OECD has been tasked for a two-year program ending in 2015, on, with a set of measures to address profit shifting, and at the head of the Cairns meeting, the OECD's outline a set of proposals. These include a new international reporting standards, better transparency between tax administration, restoring the benefits of bilateral tax agreements, but the big one, Gary, is where multinational enterprises are going to have to report in each tax jurisdiction in which they operate, and they're going to have to disclose their revenue, profit before income tax, income tax paid and accrued.
0: So the Irish Dutch sandwich is coming off the table.
1: Now, Australia's a economy is expected to pick up pace in early 2015 as consumers become more confident and start spending again. The Westpac Melbourne Institute leading index, which indicates the likely pace of economic activities three to nine months in the future, fell by one, 0.15 points in August. And that would indicate economic growth is staying below average pace for the rest of the year but Westpac chief economist Bill Evans is more optimistic about the new year and he says consumer spending in the second half of 2013 is going to improve and rise further in the new year.
0: Well I hope he's right.
1: Well the big news of course Gary during the week was Australia's decision to deploy fighter jets and military personnel to the Middle East.
0: But no boots on the ground.
1: Uh, So far but that's going to cost the budget an extra four Hundred million dollars a year, at least. Well, it's going to run into the billions. The Australian Defence Force is poised to send up to eight F A eighteen Super Hornet aircraft, refuelling control aircraft, as well as six hundred special forces and logistics and other experts. Now, Treasurer Joe Hockey said the full cost of the mission to take on the Islamic State extremists will be outlined in the mid-year economic and fiscal outlook in November. So that's going to be an absolute doozy, Gary.
0: Yeah, we're not going to see see a surplus for a hundred
1: years. <laughs> no, no, I don't. You can forget about surpluses, you know, Senior Analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute Mark Thompson, he's saying the mission's price tag is about $400 million a year And an ASPI report released this year put the total defence budget at 29.3 billion, or 1.8% of gross domestic product. And the cost of the ongoing Afghanistan deployment, which mostly involves training the Afghan National Army, was 350 million. And since 1998, Australia has spent more than 16.5 million on military operations and overseas deployments. And Afghanistan has cost us 9.3 billion.
0: It's a costly business, that's right. But the polls seem to think there's a slight majority in favour of. Um, this uh, intervention
1: yes yes but let's see how it goes Um, now the Australian house prices according to the Bank for International Settlements are among the world's most expensive in the Bank of International Settlements latest quarterly review of global housing Australia is the second most expensive market behind Norway it's actually ahead of Great Britain and Sweden and
0: we note there's a uh, penthouse in the Eureka Tower is being sold for 22 million dollars
1: Look, on a price-to-rent ratio which assesses the theoretical ability of rental yield to cover mortgage costs, Australia is one of the world's highest-cost housing market. And so the BIS, which acts as a central bank to the world's central banks, puts Australia's ratio at 150, which is 50 points above the historical average of the sample group, behind only Sweden, Canada and Norway.
0: Yeah, how long can this go on, I wonder?
1: Well, indeed, the Reserve Bar BA has again said the most prudent course of action is likely over a period of stability but it sounded a note of caution about the brooming property market in the minutes of its uh, September meeting. Board members said the housing prices were continuing to increase in the larger cities. It concluded the risks associated with this trend warrant close observation.
0: Man, I see a bubble on the horizon.
1: Well, Federal Treasurer Joe Hockey has dismissed the idea that a property bubble is forming in Australia. He just says rising prices is just a reaction to the lack of supply.
0: Well, let's see. I mean, I, I just think it's very dangerous, the whole well, thing.
1: Hockey reckons a surge in new dwelling construction, much of it coming from foreign investment in Sydney Melbourne and Brisbane is going to go some way to addressing the housing shortages in the country. He dismisses the idea that households and investors are taking on too much debt too much debt.
0: The the foreign investment review boards now under criticism, saying that a lot of the sales to Chinese and other foreign investors in housing is has been illegal, hasn't been watched properly. But even so, the Chinese particularly are buying apartment blocks; they're not buying individual houses unless you're in the top of the market.
1: That's right. That's right. And that's driving up the prices. Yes, it is. I mean, they they've bought property. They've paid millions of dollars for properties around the city.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Melbourne particularly. Yeah,
1: that's right, that's right. And it's driving up the prices. Now, Bank of America Merrill Lynch is anticipating the Australian dollar to be the worst-performing currency in 2015 because the resources boom is fading and US interest rates are going to rise, it says.
0: We're down under down under 90, aren't we, this morning?
1: 89. Yeah, now, speaking of the global uh, Australian Investment Conference in New York at the end of last week, the bank's head of global rates and currency research, David Wu, said the US economy is starting to gather momentum and that will lead to an inevitable rise in rates. And the flow in Forex impacts is going to hit the Australian currency, and the bank tips an end of 2015 level of about 80 cents. Which
0: is, isn't altogether bad. It's no good if you're going overseas, but it's pretty good if you're flogging oranges.
1: Well, it's a 10% drop from the current levels, uh, you know, about... 90.89 cents mm-hmm. and it's the first 6 months low. It's 15% from where the currency stood at the start of last week.
0: John Casella is going to be very pleased at Yellowtail, he might even start making a profit.
1: Absolutely. James Hardy is crying poor. They are saying the funding of claims are going to fall short in 2017, the Asbestos Injuries Compensation Fund or the AICF wants to as a renewed payment agreement with the company in the New South Wales government. Now every year James Hardy contributes up to 35% of its net operating cash flow to the AICF. And that agreement extends to 2045, and there's recurring automatic 10-year extension periods thereafter if required. And the AISF is seeking New South Wales Supreme Court approval to establish a scheme for the payment of claims from July 2015. Yeah. before before the flag shortfall in sure, 2017. Yeah. And the final bit of news is that uh, Treasurer Joe Hockey reckons he'd like to see Arthur Senadinos return to his ministerial role once he's cleaned by ICAC. Joe's got a, got a problem somewhere. Senadinos stood aside earlier this year to address allegations raised in New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption in state libs. And look, his performance there last week was not impressive, Gary. I mean, he told them he didn't take responsibility for the money being raised from banned donors like property developers. He acknowledged the party's finance committee oversaw or donations made Liberal, but he denied that he, as chairman, had a role to look at the identity of the donors.
0: So he's there sitting in the chair as a figurehead. It's none of my responsibility.
1: That said, Hockey's uh, Hockey's OK with that, and he says Senator, Senator Senator Dennis's move to step aside had only ever been temporary. So let's just watch that space, Gary.
0: Indeed, and I think is going to come under some criticism again.
1: So that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. And uh, next week... We... We've got a great interview with uh, Domino's Pizza Chief uh, dom mage
0: yeah he was busy talking to the students at uh, rmit recently and
1: we caught up with him we did indeed and uh, got the wisdom of the pizza master that's right and in the meantime you can keep in touch with us on twitter at talking double z or on facebook until then stay safe and we look forward to talking to you next week